Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Let's talk about um, the book of Mark. This is our last week. This is our 12th week in our series together. And Mark is going to bring the story of Jesus to a conclusion. And I want you to see how powerful this is in his emphasis on details, on emphasis on the historic details that are taking place here. When I was, uh, I just graduated from the University of Texas and I I wasn't certain about what I wanted to do and I was probably going to be a lawyer and I thought, you know what, I'm going to put my ambitions over here to the side and why not? I loaded everything I owned in a little 72 Volkswagen Beetle and I drove out to California to go to seminary, that's graduate school for theology. And uh, this was not a very particularly good Volkswagen. And it's, it's, it's a long drive anyway across two deserts, but I didn't have an air conditioner or a radio, and there was just way too much time to think. And I was kind of a new Christian. I've been a Christian 18 months, maybe two years, and here's what I was thinking. I hope Christianity is true. I really do, because <laughs> I'm rearranging a lot of my life for this. And I thought about that for 23 hours. Four years later, I have picked up a wife, a dog, and a cat. And now I'm coming back from California, and we're coming to Austin to start a church. And we didn't know anyone. We were broke. We didn't have jobs. And we were heading into the worst economy in the history of Austin. And I was in my Volkswagen. It's a different Volkswagen. Still no air conditioner. Still not a radio that I could hear. Melinda was in her car. Two deserts I'm crossing. There's a lot of time to think. And you know what I was thinking? Yeah, still thinking. I hope Christianity is true. I really do. Now, here's the thing. Now, I went to four years of graduate school in theology, and I learned a lot. But what had changed was I was gambling a lot more. I was risking more. And so I was reconsidering everything. It, and that's, I think that's the Christian life. I mean, I think real Christianity is it's supposed to be feeling expensive. It's supposed to, I think if you're truly following Jesus Christ and, and leading where he calls you, I think you're supposed to think every once in a while, are you crazy? Is this really true? It's, if it, as, the, as the cost of following Jesus goes up, you wonder, is it real? If on the back glass it etched... It says, love the Lord your God. You know, the, you know the passage, right? And as you deepen in your walk with the Lord, as the years go by and you're, and you're trying to learn to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your might, each one of those is deepening a commitment and it's deepening an expense. And you're kind of wondering, is it true? Is, it, is, is, is this Christianity thing true? Now, it, because that is part of living the Christian life, the authors of the biographies of the life of Jesus Christ all spend a particularly large amount of time on the, on the, on the topic that distinguishes Christianity from everything else. In other words, um, the, the writers of the Gospels put great emphasis on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason they do that is because 
it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that simply define Christianity. Okay, it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that defines Christianity. As a matter of fact, I'll put, it in, I'll put a negative side to this. It is, if you don't believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. That's just, I mean, that's it. Because the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ defines it. Now, this isn't my view. This isn't, this isn't my, this is the view of the Bible. Here's St. Paul who puts it like this. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. There, pretty blunt, a couple sentences later. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. It's a biblical fact. You must believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a Christian. It's not just biblical, it's logical. Watch this. This is strange. In 1985, there was a debate, and the debate was called, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? It was the debate on the resurrection of the Christ. And it was between Gary Habermas, who is an apologetics professor, and a, a, a man named Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew uh, used to teach philosophy of religion at Oxford, amongst other places, and he was famous for being an atheist. He, he was most of his career, he was an atheist. As a matter of fact, one book that's named, it's written about him, this is in the title, The World's Most Notorious Atheists, okay? So here's the most notorious atheist, Anthony Flew, and Gary Habermas, and this is the top, this is, this is, this is the manuscript, this book called Did Jesus uh, Rise from the Dead? This is a manuscript of that debate, and this is the opening statement of the atheist. It's the opening statement of the atheist, okay? He says, I will begin by spelling out three fundamentals upon which Dr. Habermas and I agree. One, okay, first, uh, we both construe resurrection, he's defining a term, re resurrection, rising of the dead, is thoroughly literal and physical. He means a physical, literal way. That's all he's saying. It's just like, it's not, you know, it's not spiritual. It's a real dead guy. It's a real raised guy. Second, we are again agreed that the question whether Jesus did rise from the dead is of supreme theoretical and practical importance, for it is the best, if not the only reason, to accept that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Okay? So, Anthony Flew understands that Jesus claimed to be God, and he'd have to rise from the dead to prove it. And he said... This does, it would do that. And third, he says, you have to agree to all three of these. Third, we would agree that these two fundamentals would require Christians to insist that adherence to all of those other religions and mine, atheism, are, on a matter of supreme importance, ruinously wrong. That if Jesus rose from the dead, it's a religion that's different in kind, not in degree. He goes on, the next thing that he says is he calls out the, the, the senior archbishop of the Church of England by name. He says, David Jenkins, the senior archbishop of the Church of England, is not a Christian because he does not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's how you define Christianity. Wow. <laughs> so in review, it is biblical, it is logical. To, to believe that Christianity is built on this foundation and its uniqueness is based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, today what I want to do is I want to show you that Mark is going to be emphasizing that point because of its profound importance. And we're going to look at what he does is he, he sharpens his pencil and goes to the minute details uh, in this section of his gospel and he's going to belabor the point 
And it's easy for us to miss the obvious, and the obvious is this. He, he's writing a story of history, and he's, he's writing it in a way so that you would know that this Christianity thing, oh, it's true. It's true. It's a historical fact. And we know that, first of all, that he's just going to go through the things that could be negotiated or debated. One, Jesus' death was certified. Jesus' death was certified. And uh, chapter, some people would maybe some, someday later would say, oh, he just got hurt. He was nearly dead, and then he got better in three days. I know it's hard to believe that people would believe that, but he's going to make sure that you, you can't hold to that. So in chapter 15, verse 37 begins, this is the death of Jesus, and with that loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger brother of Joseph, and Salome. Okay. In Galilee, these women used to follow him around, and they cared for Jesus' needs. And so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate to see if he could have Jesus' body. So he's using a word here that implies that Jesus was dead. Pilate will not release the body until he's certain and certified that that man, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact dead. So the next verses say, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. Repetition of words for point of emphasis. When he learned from the centurion that it was in fact so that he was dead, he gave the body to Joseph. <laughs> We have the ruler of this section of, of Judea saying, I'll let you have that body, but it has to be, have a death certificate attached to it. And I'm going to do that by checking with a centurion who does this for a living. This man specializes in killing people. He'll know a dead person when he sees it. Is that person dead? Oh, he's very dead. Okay, Joseph of Arimathea, yes, you may have that. You may have the remains. And he doesn't we're not just basing his absolute death on Pilate's certification, the centurion's um, uh, certainty of that, but we also have other witnesses. We have, right, Joseph of Arimathea, who has lowered him, he's wrapped him up, and then he's put him in a, in, in a um, tomb. We have these three women that are watching this happen, right? So we have all of these witnesses in detail to be certified dead. And why, why does Mark go into all these details? I mean, think, why would that be necessary? Because he wants you and I, he wants everybody to know that this Jesus of Nazareth, oh, he died. Because if he died and rose, that would change a lot of the way you live. It would affect most major decisions that you'll make in life, like uh, your career. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead he, and all the religions are, eh, then you, what do you want to do? You do whatever you want to do, what pleases you the most, maybe what's easiest or what makes the most money or whatever it might be. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then you need to ask yourself, how did God create me? What gifts did he give me? And how can I use those gifts to make the most of the kingdom of God? That's a whole different way of looking at life, right? I mean, we're either all singing along, I did it my way, or we're going to say, we're going to sing, I did it God's way. And those are big differences, and that's a big decision. You, you can go across the street in our office, and you can interview anyone that works there. Every person in our, in our employment at Grace could be making more money, either doing something very similar outside the church or have a whole different career 
doing something completely different because they're talented. But since Jesus rose from the dead, they had to ask themselves, with these gifts and these abilities, how could I best serve the kingdom? And sometimes, if that's true, he'll call you to work in the church. And that, well, frankly, it's going to cost you. And people make those choices. And when they make those choices, here's what they think. This Christianity had better be true. <laughs> right? I mean, well, at least one guy did. I know that. Okay. This Christianity better be true. Okay. Besides the death being absolutely certified, the, the burial was public. The burial of Jesus was public. There's it's no ambiguity here. Somebody could say, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. They went to an empty tomb. It was the wrong tomb. That's why it was empty. And Mark won't let that happen. So Joseph uh, bought some linens and then took down the body and wrapped it up in these linens and then placed the, uh, the remains in the tomb and cut out, that was cut out of a rock. And then he rolled a, a stone against the entrance of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where it was laid. Okay, Jesus was buried in a famous man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was part of the, the religious leadership. It was part of this council, the Sanhedrin. He knew where he owned a tomb. And not only that, Mary and, and Mary, both Marys were there. They watched it. Listen, by the way, watch how he keeps naming them specifically. I mean, it, it, there's, there's an obnoxious redundancy in Mark's continual restatement of these three women. Well, watch, let me show you how he will bring it up every time when he talks about Jesus' death and Jesus' entombment and then on Resurrection Sunday. Look what happens. Here's the death. And with a loud cry, Jesus gave his last breath. Some of the women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger brother Joseph, and Salome. And in Galilee, these women used to follow him around and cared for him. Okay, good. That's, thanks, Mark. Okay, verse uh, on his burial. And Joseph placed him in a tomb that he cut out of a rock, and then he rolled a stone in front of it. And who was there? Oh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, they saw where he was laid. All right. Easter Sunday, and when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Wow. You can't shorthand that? The two Marys and the other one? I mean, you, what? Why? Three times in eight sentences, their formal names and addresses. It would be, you know, first, middle, and last name for us. And he, and he can't shorthand this. Why would someone do that? I mean, it, the, 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 in a positive way, he's like being a court reporter. He's, he's recording all of the facts the way they are, and these are the primary witnesses to a major event. And so every time they come up, he's going to say first, middle, and last name. Because these women were quite possibly still alive when Mark is, is sending his book around to be read. And he's basically saying, you, want, you, you got a problem with this story? The key witnesses are still here. Here's their first, middle, and last name, Mary Magdalene. She still lives on Elm Street. Just go ask her. She was there. I mean, th this is not how you write a legend. You know, let's just pretend this whole thing's a hoax and, and they're trying to build this legend up and, and then hopefully it'll catch some traction and, and move on and become something big. Friends, if you're writing a myth or a legend, you don't use real people's real names that are still alive. And listen, let me just, it's kind of a side thing. You never use women as your key witnesses. This is the ancient Near East. This is, it doesn't matter if it's ancient Near East or not. It's just the Near East. Still, to this day, in some countries in the Middle East, women can't testify. 
doesn't matter. 50 women can see an event, but it didn't happen until one man did. And that's how it was certainly back then. You didn't use women as key witnesses, and you don't. Why would you bring in these women's name over and over again and have them be witnesses to this event? And why would you record it so many times in so many specific ways? It's obvious because that's what happened. And when you're recording what happened, you record the details of what happened. It doesn't matter whether you have a prejudice or a sexist view towards women being witnesses to this. He's just recording the facts. And these are the facts of what happened. And so why does he go into the details of, of who saw it and how, what their names are over and over again and the fact that they're women? Why does he do the details of the death and the burial of Jesus? Here's why. Because come April, when you start doing your taxes and you're starting to do the math about your charitable giving and you see the total about how much you've given to what God is doing around the world and locally through his local church, and you look at that, it's easy for you to go, I could have something. I could, I could go some, I could go on a vacation or put it in savings, but look at this number. Am I crazy? I must be crazy. And you think, this Christianity, it better be true. And Mark comes in and says, oh, you're not crazy. There's a, there's a lot of specificity to what happened, and I try to get as many details as possible because I know someday you'll be thinking, should you be doing that? It's going to look strange, but it's not strange if Jesus rose from the dead. All right, third thing that he talks about is the evidence of the resurrection. It's very convincing. Uh, people die. That's pretty easy. People get buried. Yep, he's very much alive. Wow, this is different. Um, let me just read some for the end of the chapter. Chapter 16 is the last chapter, and forgive me for all of this reading, but I want you to see it. And when the Sabbath was over, this is when Mary, Mary, and Salome uh, bought the spices and they came to anoint Jesus. And very early, the first day of the week, that's Sunday, it's Resurrection Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they forgot to see if there would be someone to help them remove the stone, okay? Oh, anyway, but when, as soon as they looked up, they saw that the stone, would, which was all very large, had already rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe, that's an angel, sitting at the right side, and they were very alarmed. And this is the first sentence of angels throughout the Bible. He says, do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Yeah, you're seeing me. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he was laying right there? Yeah, he's gone. But go, tell the disciples and especially Peter. He is going ahead of you uh, into Galilee. There you will see him just like he foretold you, just like he told you ahead of time. Now, that's, the, that's these three women's experience with the resurrection. But I want you to know, uh, we don't believe that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead just because these three women had a conversation with what could be an angel. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus, in the next 40 days, will have 12 separate encounters with over 500 people where he shows up and he says, look at me, touch me if you must. It's me. There's no doubt about this. 
and, and, and even the size of the group. He appears before 500 at one time. This is kind of a thing in, in crime uh, or psychology. 500 people can't hallucinate all at the same time and see the same thing. And so he appears to 500 and 12 different other occasions where he's just basically showing off, I'm, I'm, I've been raised from the dead here. It, it's so convincing, and people are still alive at the time that both Peter and Paul, when they write their letters to churches, say, look, if you, if you have any doubts, just ask people that saw him. Here's one of Paul's examples. And after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have died, sure, but most people are still alive. <laughs> I mean, why all the witnesses? Why all these appearances? Here's why. Because the promises of the Bible, and especially those that came out of the very mouth of Jesus the Christ, are they're too good to believe. You just, they seem too good to be true, especially in a world that has gone insane. And you want to believe when Jesus talks about his return that he would come and start a new kingdom and that he would make all things right again. And there will be justice at last. And there will be restoration between man and his fellow man, between man and himself, between man and his God, and man and nature. There's a, it says there's a new heaven and a new earth. We get, a, we, we get a, a new body. We have new heaven, new earth, new bodies. Everything's well. There's a word for it in Hebrew. You know the word. Shalom. Peace. This infinite, total, everlasting peace. That's what Jesus promises, and we can't believe it. And so he leaves all this evidence that proves, look, I was raised from the dead. I have a new body. You'll get one too. There will be a new kingdom, and I'll make it right. I'm not coming back on a lamb. I'm coming back on a war horse, and we'll make this right, and there will be peace. There will finally be peace. And listen, the reason that you and I have crushing problems in this life, not sorrow, crushing sorrow, is because we think this is all there is. See, why do we have problems with um, disease or disabilities, crushing problems with disease or disability? How can we have uh, soul-wrenching ethical dilemmas when we're having to make choices that could affect you know, our well-being or our income stream or our reputation, right? How come when we suffer uh, from the, the death of someone that we love or the angst of realizing, you know, that existential moment that we will die and be forgotten? Why is it crushing? It's crushing because we think this is all there is in life. This is all there is, right, in earth. And this is all, this is the only life I live. So this is it. This is the only life, this is the only income stream I will ever have, so I have to make decisions based on that. This is the only body I'll have, and if it starts breaking, I won't, this is it. Or if it gets diseased, it's like, woe is me. But Jesus comes along in this resurrection, it proves, no, 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 this is not all there is. This is not the world that, that goes into eternity, and this is not the body that you'll have later. So your disease is only temporary, your disabilities are only, you know, passing. And there's so much more. He, so he, he springs on upon us that we can live in these dark places, but with hope. 
and the hope is based on a promise, and the promise is based on a resurrection. You see? And so if you're staring down at a casket, and whether it's, you know, a, a young daughter or an old grandmother, and the pastor is talking about this resurrected body, and they'll be better, he's telling the truth. It's not hopeful thinking. It's not wishful. It's not romantic. It's historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And now these caskets, they're just, they're wombs. <laughs> they're, just, they're birth canals. It's not over. It's starting. And, and Jesus needs to do something really spectacular for us to believe that to be true. Can, can it be true? Is Christianity really true? He goes, yeah, it is. It is. So, I mean, just in summary, Christianity can be expensive, it can be uh, uncomfortable, it can be humbling. We make life decisions based on whether it's true or not, about who we're going to date, how we're going to date, how we're going to marry, how, how we're going to play our place in marriage, how we're going to parent, what we're going to do, where we're going to live. And all of those decisions are built upon a slab of did this man from Nazareth really die? And did he really raise from the dead? Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that's why Mark writes this story. Now, I'll tell you, let me just summarize the whole book, okay? Mark, I think Mark writes the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells us the story about this king that comes as a servant. He tells the story of the king that disguises himself as a servant in great historical detail so that you and I would believe and believe, I mean, know, know two things to be true. He wants us to know two things to be true. You are free. You are free. You are free from the cost of sin, right? You are free from guilt, and you are free from shame, and you are free from weakness. You are free from the cost of sin, the guilt of sin. You're free from embarrassment. Don't you hold your head down. And you are no longer weak. How does that happen? How could that possibly happen that you could be so free? It's called the great exchange where he takes your stuff and he gives you his stuff. In a sentence, it reads like this. God made Jesus who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. We give Jesus our moral debt. He gives us his moral righteousness and proves it. He proves it by being raised from the dead. We give him our shame. He could have died a lot of different ways, maybe in his sleep, in the middle of a happy dream. That is not how he died. He took on our shame. He died a shameful death. He was beaten in public, paraded through the streets in near nakedness, and maybe hung on that cross in the same condition. He did that to take on our shame so that we can get his honor. You prodigal child, you've returned. And when you come in your rags with your head held down, he greets you with the royal robe and the royal ring and the royal sandals. You get his honor. 
He takes your shame. And he takes your powerless, weak frailty. He became frail in us, right? He takes on that frailty, and he gives us the power of this. This is a Bible verse. And we now inherit the same power of the Spirit that raised him from the dead. You are free, friends. You have no guilt. You have no shame. You have power now. How do we know that? Because he rose from the dead. That's out. Anybody that trusts that Jesus Christ went there for them, he didn't get a group discount. Know this. He, he died because of you. I put him there. You put him. No one else in the whole world exists. You're driving nails into those hands because that's the cost of sin, and he has to pay for it. But he'll come back, and he'll give you his righteousness. If you believe that to be true, and there's a lot of facts that would suggest that he did rise from the dead, that this Christianity is different in kind, not in degree, you'll have those promises. Mark writes this book because he wants you to know that you are free. Mark writes this book because he wants you to know that you are not crazy. You are not crazy. I'm telling you, you pursue the etched glass. You pursue to... Per- to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, you keep doing that, it's going to get more and more expensive. It's going to get more expensive emotionally, relationally, financially. Every way that you can think of, it's going to cost you. And you're not crazy for doing it. You know why? Because what did Jesus say about what it cost to follow him? What did he say? What what did did Jesus say about sacrificing for him? He said, there is no sacrificing for following me. It doesn't cost anything to follow me. When you sacrifice for me, you are investing in something that's going to pay off huge. There's never any trading down in following Jesus. It's not expensive. It's, It's raining blessings. He said this. He said this. Whoever, anyone who gives up their father or mother or sister or brother or gave up their land or their farm or any of their possessions for me or the kingdom of God will receive a hundred times that in this life and the next. It doesn't cost you to follow him. You're not crazy for following him. You're not crazy for surrendering your life to do that. You're not crazy for doing that. You're not crazy for being the only family that you know in the whole first, second grade class that's raising their child to the glory of God and is not exposing them to things that would they'd cause them to lose their innocence. I know you feel like you're the only one. Right, that happens. You're not the only person, and you're not crazy for pursuing purity at whatever cost, even abject loneliness, Right? You're not crazy for, like, leaning into parenting or, or marriage roles. You know, the ones you're supposed to be doing, the guidances and the principles that are in, they're clear in the Bible, that you just, like, men lead and women, you know, respect their husbands and guys love their wives. And that's not easy. It's, sometimes it's easier to just be lazy, isn't it? Oh, it's easy to be lazy. It's, it's fundamentally simple to be, to be selfish. But you say, no, no, no. I'm not going to do that. that, I'm going to do what God calls me to be. I want to be the man or the woman of God that he wants me to be. And you're not crazy for doing that. You're not, 
crazy for getting your kids up on a day like today where it's cold and, and you're a single mom and you're dressing them up and you're getting them up here. It's like, it'd be so much easier to sleep in. And you're looking around at your neighbors and everyone else is. They're just reading the paper. They've got a fire going while you're driving down the street. You're not crazy. You're not crazy to serve in the local church. It's his bride. Getting here early or staying late or serving in any kind of context, that's what you, you, know, that's what, that's what you do. Mark wrote a book. He wrote a biography, and he wanted you to know these two things, and he wanted you to know for sure on those weird mornings, on those dark afternoons, he wanted you to know that you are free and you are not crazy because he rose from the dead. He proved it. Amen, right? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we lift up um, our souls to you. I am grateful for Mark. As, as a member of the Doubting Thomas Club, I am so grateful for his meticulous details of naming names and bringing in these incidental little things that help me in my moments of doubt. Now, Lord Jesus, would you help us as a church be a church that is free of guilt and shame that is powerful by your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be a church that looks crazy to everyone out, outside, people that just don't believe in this resurrection, that we would do things, invest in, in ways, and we would say things that would only make sense. We'd be crazy, except that we love you and your spirit dwells within us. Lord Jesus, let us be individuals of that. Let us be a church filled with that, that we might be a light on a hill, that we would be a church that could bless this city. And all God's people said, amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.